All right, grab your Bibles. We'll go to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. So we come to the conclusion. It's after Genesis, Jackie. After Genesis, before Revelation. Somewhere in there is Zephaniah. Before Matthew, after Exodus, <laughs> Zephaniah chapter 3 will be in verses 9 through 20 tonight. Go and stand with me as we read the scriptures. Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. The Bible says, For then will I turn to the people a pure language, they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My suppliants, even the daughter of my disperse, shall bring mine offering. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart of O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth and gathereth, or gather her that it was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all the people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. Heavenly Father, bless your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Tonight we're going to wrap up our eight-week study of the book of Zephaniah. We have seen judgment pronounced and predicted. God's enemies will be laid to waste, but he reserves mercy for his people. Don't you love that about God? God is merciful to his people. In this portion of the book, we'll see the glorious future that God has for his people. He will purify them, and they will never again be brought under his judgment. And I love the theme of this book. Let's start tonight in verse number 9. The Bible says, For then will I turn to the people a pure language. They may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. We've come to what is probably... The most important verse in the Bible. I know we often think of the more obvious verses like John 3.16 or Romans 12.1 and 2. But this verse, though relatively unknown, is very important. It's the connection point between Genesis 11 and Acts chapter 2. It's the link between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
This verse brings together the stories of Babel and Pentecost, and it really ties the whole Bible together into one story. It's a key to the unity of the scriptures. It's one of the threads that binds up the whole canon as one book and one story. If you think I'm overselling it, let me demonstrate tonight what I'm talking about. If you remember the Tower of Babel, it was the moment in history when nations were cast out in confusion by changing their languages. We get a list of nations in the book of Genesis. God turned out the nations and reserved for himself one nation, and that being the nation of Israel, whom he would establish in the calling of Abraham. In Genesis 11, we see the turning out of the nations at Babel and the introduction of the family of Abraham. In chapter 12, the very next chapter, we have the calling of Abraham. When we turn to Acts 2, we have the nations gathered on the day of Pentecost. What we end up with in Acts 2 is the exact same nations as in Genesis 11, but in reverse order. Babel was the turning away of the nations, reserving one nation to God through whom he would bring the Messiah. Through the Messiah, God would call those nations back to him and gather everything together in Christ. The reason that we see them in reverse order in Acts is that we are witnessing what can be called an eschatological reversal. Christ is the second Adam, and in him we have a reversal of the curse. Time counted down from the fall to Christ, and now it counts up from Christ to the restoration of all things. We see this reversal at Pentecost when Peter and the apostles preached, and every man from the nations that were divided at Babel heard him speak in his own tongue. This is not a coincidence. Another aspect of Babel, if you investigate the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 11, is that it wasn't just the languages that were confused at Babel. That's what the, the Sunday school story is, that it was just their languages were changed and they couldn't understand one another. But that's not the thrust of the story. James Jordan covers this in his book called Christendom and the Nations. And he says it wasn't just their language that was confused, but their confession that was confused. This whole Babel event in Genesis chapter 11 has a significant religious overtone to it, okay? What they confessed about God was confused as they were divided. There was a religious nature to their building project. This was not just, uh, some people think the, the Tower of Babel was just a way to survive another flood if it came. Um, but what they were doing was very much pagan worship. It, was, it wasn't just trying to survive the flood, right? It was religious in nature. We need to remember that. First of all, one of the purposes was not to be scattered upon the earth. That's one of the purposes that they give in Genesis 11 for the Tower of Babel. What was God's command to Adam and to Noah both? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. They were commanded by God to scatter around, and they were trying not to obey that command. They were in rebellion to God. Secondly, the tower was a pagan ziggurat. It was intended to be a place of pagan worship. They wanted to ascend into the heavens to live with the gods. Many pagan beliefs believe that the gods live in the upper atmosphere, right? You have the Greek mythology like Zeus and those guys. And they, they live just above the clouds and they come down to deal with men. They were trying to get up to dwell with these gods. Who are these gods? These are demons. They're trying to get up to dwell with these demons, these false gods that they're worshiping. So what they're doing at Babel is not just disobeying God, which they are disobeying God, but they're, they're building a pagan shrine 
in order to dwell with demons. That's what's going on in the Tower of Babel. So everything they were doing was religious rebellion. They were worshiping fallen angels as gods. We learn in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, that God divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God. I believe this is referencing the angels. He kept only Jacob for his inheritance. What does it mean he divided the nations according to the sons of God or to the angels? Uh, that is that he put angels over the nations. He put them in charge of certain regions of the world. I believe these angels became fallen angels and sought worship for themselves. Much like Lucifer sought worship for himself. So these angels put in this position of power, put over these people, begin to seek the worship of these people, begin to seek to, to want to be worshipped by them. Okay, We see examples of this in Daniel when the prince of Persia withstood Gabriel as he went to deliver an answer to Daniel's prayer. There was a prince of Persia. In other words, there was an angel, an angelic being, who was over the region of Persia who was preventing Gabriel from bringing the answer to Daniel until Michael interceded in that event. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the nations were divided up according to the number of the sons of God. That is, God put angels over the nations of men, and these angels began to seek the worship of men. <coughs> Behind every false god in the Bible, I promise you, these were not dumb rocks. These were, they were not just bowing down to stone statues. There were demons behind each of these false gods. And there's demons behind our false worship today. We've talked about this before, right? All of these religions believe an angel appeared to them and started their religion. The Mormons believe that. You have the, the Catholics and their apparitions of Mary that appear. And, and what does Mary do? Does she come to glorify Christ? You know what's funny? When, when God sent the Holy Spirit, right, part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, Though the Spirit is God, equal with the Father and the Son, it says in the Bible he will not speak of himself, right? He always points back to Christ. So even the Holy Spirit of God, who is God, does not seek worship for himself, but points us to worship Christ. Then why does Mary keep appearing and telling people to build churches in her honor and to bow and pray to her? Do you see the problem there? If a third member of the Godhead does not seek people's worship directly to himself, why would Mary seek that worship or that adoration, you want to call it, directly to herself? It's, it's, it's false uh, demons, it's fallen angels behind these false gods. There are, there are demons behind uh, e even the non-religious gods of our day. So we have a lot of false worship today that doesn't take the form of worship. There's no church building. There's no liturgy. There's no songs they sing. But uh, abortion is sacrificing to demons, right? There, <coughs> excuse me. There are demons behind the abortion industry. There are demons behind the LGBTQ agenda. There are demons behind secularism, evolution, all these things. There are demons behind these false things. And people don't may not realize it directly, but they are worshiping these false gods, these fallen creatures. So it's happening even today. Fallen angels, demons, whatever you want to call them, they seek worship for themselves. They seek to usurp that which belongs to God only, and they seek to deceive us. Let me tell you, all this talk about aliens, UFOs, 
If a demon landed on earth today disguised as a Martian, I promise you people would worship him. I promise you they would. If he showed any kind of supernatural ability, they'd worship him. There's demons behind all the false religions out there. A lot of false religions have a lot of recordings of miracles happening. You know why they have miracles? Because demons can work miracles too. That's why we must stick close to the scripture. That's why Paul said, even if an angel from heaven preaches to you another gospel than we've preached, he's accursed. You know why? Because there are angels out there who are not angels from heaven, who pose as angels from heaven. What is it the Bible says of even Satan himself was transformed into an angel of light. They appear good. They appear to be giving good words, but they are not giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're drawing away worship for themselves. Like Satan, these angels were puffed up with pride and power seeking, and they sought the worship of men. Now let me draw all this back into verse number nine that we're looking at. Okay, where was I at here? Verse number nine. For then will I turn to the people of pure language, they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. He doesn't say, and I want you to catch this, he doesn't say all the people will speak the same language, does he? That's not what he says. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord. At Babel, the languages of the people were confused. This meant that they could not understand one another. It also meant they spoke in a confused way about God. In other words, God turned pagans against one another. You could say that paganism was divided up into different denominations at that time, each pagan group with its own false god or gods. God is not going to change their languages into one speech but into a pure speech. To make this change about languages would hint that some languages are impure. Do you understand that? God says, I'm going to turn them to a pure language. If this, if this means changing their language into one language, what he's saying is there's one pure language and the rest are impure languages. And that just reeks of racism to me. I don't think that's what God is saying here. He's not changing their language, but what... But, He's changing what they say in their language. He's going to change what they confess about God. He's going to change their religious confession. Confused speech about God will give way to pure speech about God. The promise of this verse is that English speakers, French speakers, Spanish speakers, Chinese speakers, Russian speakers, and so on will all come to confess one truth about God. They will come to confess each in their own language that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will call upon the name of the Lord in their own tongue. At Pentecost, God didn't change their languages. He brought them the truth in their own language. In Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue are praising the Lamb. Think about that. Every tribe and tongue are praising the Lamb. I'm not sure if we'll speak one heaven, one language in heaven. That's a question that comes up a lot throughout life. Or whether we'll simply understand each other's language. I lean towards that one. I think that's the most likely scenario. We'll simply understand one another. If we all speak the same language, then there wouldn't be an emphasis in Revelation on every tongue, would there? He would say every tribe and every nation. 
But the fact that he says tongue tells me that those in Revelation are worshiping Christ in their own tongue, in their own language. I believe the most likely scenario is that people are in heaven right now praising God in English and Japanese and Cambodian and whatever the ancient Philistines spoke. You can see why I call this the most important verse of the Bible, can't you? At the, time, at the end of verse 9, he says the people will serve him with one consent. This means willingly. There's no forced obedience in the new covenant. See, in the old covenant, it was kind of a forced obedience, right? You had to do all these outward things. You had to be circumcised. You had to make sacrifices. You had to keep the law. You had to go to the feast days. You had to go through all these things you had to do to be faithful to the covenant. Within the new covenant, there is no outward forced obedience. In other words, we don't obey Christ by the letter of the law, but by the inward work of grace. God changes our heart, and that change works its way out into our actions so that we obey Christ from the inside out. They were obeying Christ from the outside in, right? That's not how we do it today. It's not a forced obedience. God now works in us to obey from the inside out. This means our obedience comes from within as God works in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. From the farthest region, that's what Ethiopia says here, that was the farthest region Israel was aware of. From the farthest regions, they will bring offering or worship the Lord. The daughter of my dispersed is not a reference to Israel's dispersion, but to the nations dispersed at Babel. That's what he's talking about. This is speaking of the gospel era where the nations would worship God as we see happening today. Verse 11. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. This verse foretells the redemption that is coming in Christ. They would no more be ashamed of their transgressions. You know why? Because their sins and their iniquities I, will I remember no more, God says. He takes away their sins. We have true repentance today. Our sins are removed, put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This is speaking of an era where our sins are no longer counted against us. You know how Israel sinned, right? They broke God's covenant. They sinned against God. He'd punish them, return them to the land, punish them, return them to the land, bring nations against them. Why isn't that happening today? The answer is Romans chapter 4. Blessed is the man to whom God does not count sin. See, God no longer imputes our sins to us because they're already counted to Christ and he paid for our sins. And though he disciplines us personally, right, we don't come under judgment for our sins. They've been removed from us. He would remove from the midst of his people those who rejoiced in their pride. This, I believe, refers to the unbelieving Jewish nation that would be judged and cut off from the vine. Those who rejoiced in their pride. They would not be haughty because of his holy mountain. This is a foreshadowing of the coming destruction of the temple. Our boasting today is not in Jerusalem, is it? It's not in an earthly temple. Look at this great building that we... Our boasting is in what? The heavenly Jerusalem. The spiritual temple. The church. The body of Christ. Verse 12. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust 
in the name of the Lord. He will live in afflict, leave an afflicted and poor people. This stands in contrast to the proud and self-reliant people he's removing. The Jews were known for their pride and their self-reliance. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel was not available in this time. The gospel was not available to the poor and to the afflicted. In the old covenant, the poor and the, the afflicted, the women and those... They were kind of outcasts in society. The gospel, the salvation of God, was for the rich, for the well-connected, for, for those who had a station in society. But now it would be available to everybody. That's why Jesus came, and when he came, he didn't, he didn't spend his time with the rich and the well-connected. He went to the poor, to the lame, to the blind, to those who were the outcasts of society. We've all read that famous phrase, with God, all things are possible. But what, where does that come from? What does it mean? Does that mean sports? We can win the Super Bowl because with God, all things are possible. No. I'll get, my, I'll get this job I applied for because with God, all things are possible. No, that's not what it's talking about. Our personal goals and ambitions? No. Turn to Matthew chapter 19 real quick. Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at that phrase, with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, verse 23. The setting here is just after the encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Matthew 19, verse 23. The Bible says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Under the old covenant, salvation was a commodity for the rich and the well-connected. Jesus said it's actually harder for them to enter into eternal life his disciples were amazed. <laughs> Who can be saved? I mean, salvation is for them. If they're not, if they're barely saved, what hope do we have? Verse 26. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that's the context there. It's salvation. It's salvation. Now with God all things are possible. Those deemed unworthy of salvation will be gloriously saved by the Lord. The poor, the outcast, the Gentile, all will be brought into the family of God. That's what, that's what Zephaniah is prophesying here. The outcast, those who were looked down, those who people thought were unsavable, will be saved. You think, oh, that person, they'll never get saved. No, they'll never get saved. That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about here. With God, all things are possible. How hard is it for a rich person into the kingdom of heaven? Boy, it's hard. It's hard to give up their wealth. It's hard to give up their riches. It's hard for a famous person into, into the kingdom, isn't it? They have to give up their fame. They don't have to give it up, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to go from them if they truly love Christ. 
Christ didn't come for those who were self-righteous. He came for those who were emptied of self. Remember the Pharisee and the publican who prayed, and the Pharisee said, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this other man over here. <laughs> oh, I, I pray, I fast, I do all these things, I tithe of everything. And the publican just wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who Christ came to save. Go back to our text in Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. Verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall not do, do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This verse sounds a lot like the description of the 144,000 Jews mentioned in Revelation. Turn over there real quick. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. So remember the description we read in our, our text. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Revelation 14, verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of great thunder. I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits of God to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God." Whether there's a direct contact, connection is hard to say, but it's definitely one possible explanation that we're seeing here in Revelation. This group is being a, a picture of redeemed, the Israel of God, not ethnic Jews per se, but, but God's people. Go ahead and go back to our text. It's possible that this simply points to a remnant of ethnic Jews being brought into the church. As we see in Romans chapter 11, there's another possible explanation for it. But what, I'm, what the point is making here is that Israel will be redeemed. Israel will be redeemed. Verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. What, what, should, what we're seeing in verse 13, in my opinion, is an early prophecy of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We're seeing here is not that they're perfect or sinless, but rather they're new creatures. They do that which is right and holy because they have a new heart with new desires. Verse 14 of our text. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. 
In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear, not, fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The call here is for God's people to rejoice and celebrate. The Lord is taking away their judgments. No more exile. No more being given over to the enemy. This verse says, he cast out her enemy. I believe the reference here is to the land of Israel, meaning the church and, uh, sorry, the Israel of God, not the land of Israel, the Israel of God, meaning the church, and the enemy is the unbelieving Jewish nation which so oppressed and persecuted them. This is a, this is a prophecy of the forgiveness of sins. Uh, he's saying rejoice, rejoice, be glad. What do we see in Revelation? We see a call to rejoice when uh, the, uh, the, the whore dies, Revelation chapter 17, when the whore is destroyed, right? Rejoice over her. Sing over her, for she's cast down. Zion and Jerusalem are told to fear not. We're going to see why in the next few verses. Look at verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee. I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out. I will give them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. God is in the midst of his people. God is in the midst of his people. He rejoices over his people. He dwells amongst. We see in Revelation 21 and 22, right? God dwells in the midst of his people. The language is that he is near at hand to help and to assist them. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. We may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is what it's saying here, that he is near to us, to assist us, to help us, to uplift us. He will save his people and rejoice over them. He will rest in his love. This phrase means he will continue in his love. His love will not turn from his people. This thing about singing over his people, we see something in parallel. I don't have it in my notes here. Let me turn there real quick. In Hebrews chapter 2, let me read you a verse out of there that just came to mind. Hebrews chapter 2. Let me see where it's at here. Verse 10, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying I will declare my name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. In this passage in Hebrews 2, we see him dwelling in the midst of his people, singing over them. The same thing we see prophesied in Zephaniah chapter number 3. He will continue in his love. The love of God is steadfast. Was it Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Who will separate us from the love of God? And he goes through that list. Distress, 
famine, naked as any peril, sword, and no, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justified, right? His steadfast love will never fail. He won't turn from his people. They can rest in his love that it will continue unending. He will gather in the afflicted, the downtrodden, and the burdened. He'll bring praise from the lands that once afflicted his people. Think about that. The lands that once afflicted God's people now sing God's praise. Isn't that amazing? In Christ, they've come. They've come to Christ. They've been saved. And those that once persecuted are now rejoicing. They're among God's people. Wrapping this up tonight, severe judgment was coming to the people of God. Severe judgment. We saw that in chapter 1. He's going to punish everybody. Those who turn back from following the Lord, those who never follow the Lord, those who worship false gods in their houses, those who worship false gods in the temple, the nations around Israel, judgment was coming to everybody. But in this warning of judgment, there's a promise of final restoration. I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to restore you, and I will never again punish you. You know why? Because one was coming who would be punished for them. I'll never bring up your sins again. You know why? Because he removed our sins from us. I'll rejoice over you. I'll sing over you. I'll dwell among you. These are the promises that God has made in this book. I'll remove your enemies. You'll no longer boast in the holy mountain. You're going to boast in a spiritual Jerusalem. In this judgment, there's a promise of restoration and redemption. They failed to keep the covenant. That's Israel. Israel failed to keep the covenant. Zephaniah doesn't pull any punches on that. They've sinned against the holy God. And even Josiah's reforms couldn't change the heart of the people. They still love their sin. They still love their false gods. The revival that he led was short-lived. They went right back to it. You know why? Because it never got rooted out of the heart. That's why. Because reformation never changes a person. We used to tell people in prison all the time, my goal is not reformation, it's regeneration. If you simply reform your behavior, you may go back to it again. You know why? Your heart is still wicked. But if you regenerate it in the heart, you're a new person. And that's going to come to the outside and affect your actions. Israel broke covenant with God. But there was someone coming who would fulfill the terms of the covenant. There was coming a faithful one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would never break covenant, who would never disobey God, and who would take upon himself the sins of the people. Eternal redemption was coming for God's people. But it wasn't coming like they expected. It wasn't the glory of the new temple. It wasn't the glory, the pride of Israel. It was a servant, a humble servant born in Bethlehem who would bring redemption 
and reconciliation for the people because he would bear their iniquities and walk in righteousness, things that they could never do themselves. And you and I today are living in the age that Zephaniah prophesied. Our sins are forgiven. God dwells among his people. We have the spiritual reality of all the old signs and shadows and foreshadowings and types. God no longer remembers our sin. He doesn't count our sins against us. He's removed them from us. We have redemption. We'll never again come under judgment. That's the promise of Zephaniah. We're living in that day. We're living in that day. What about these false angels? Fallen angels. These false gods. Ephesians chapter 4 says Jesus took them, didn't he? Host of captives. He took captivity captive. In other words, he took control of all these principalities and powers. He dethroned them. And now Jesus said, all authority, all power in heaven and earth is given to me. That means we can defeat these false gods, these false religions. Abortion doesn't scare me. The LGBT crowd doesn't scare me. The secularist doesn't scare me. Because their gods have been defeated and Christ is victorious for his people. We're living in this era of promise that Zephaniah promised us. God has kept the covenant. Both ends. Our end and his end. He's done it all. And we benefit. We, we receive the blessing of his work on our behalf. Praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together tonight in your word. Lord, I well, I pray that I've covered all that as well as I can. It'd be hard to make sense of these prophets sometimes, Lord, but I know that you've prophesied today a, a wonderful time of victory for your people. We're living in that time now, though at times it doesn't seem like it. At times it feels like we're losing the battle. Christ will always be victorious. Christ will never be on the losing end. Never on the losing end. And we rest in the fact that all power is given to him in heaven and earth. Every soul of man, every government that sits, every army that marches, every decision that's made, every policy that's passed, everything is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will have the victory. When the kings of this world set their minds to cast off the Lord, to crucify him, it says in Psalm 2, you who sat in the heavens, you laughed. And today, Lord, as the secularist attempts to cast off your restraints, your designs, you laugh. Because you see that his day is coming. We thank you for the victory that we have in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that one came to stand in our place to keep the covenant and to bear our iniquities, without which we would be forever lost. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.